Well, hey everyone. Welcome to episode 257 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I was joined by a lens-based artist named Serena Zenis, who's originally from Australia, but now lives in Iceland. Serena's photography work has shifted considerably over the past couple of years, so it was great to chat with her on that transformation. Before we get started on today's episode, I wanted to thank our newest patron over on Patreon, John Flochaus. John joined our community of amazing people that are financially supporting the show to keep it running week after week, and he noted that there was a specific bonus episode relating to photographing waterfalls that he wanted to check out over on Patreon. Thanks so much for your help, John. Okay, let's get to the show. All right, Serena Zenis, it is great to have you on the podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I've been following your work for a really long time. I feel like you were up and coming around the same time I was back in, you know, 2011, 2012-ish, 2013. I feel like I remember seeing your images under a different name, Serena Ho, <laughs> uh, back, in, back then. Um, and yeah. You did a ton of night photography, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah. Really beautiful work. But, uh, but yeah, um, welcome, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. so for people that uh, that aren't familiar with you and your photography, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, so I'm originally from Australia. Uh, I grew up in Australia, and I then moved to Europe uh, just a few years ago. It was part of a huge life change for me, I guess. So previously, I'd worked as a mental health clinician in Australia. Um, and it was pretty full on. Um, and it got to the point where I just needed a break. So I went to Europe, um, retired from my role in mental health and decided to pursue photography full time. Um, I floated around in Germany and the Netherlands for a bit before finally moving to Iceland, uh, where I had a job opportunity waiting for me as um, a photography guide and a photography educator. Uh, so I moved to Iceland and then I met my husband and I've been stuck here ever since. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anyone listening feels sorry for you there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I miss home a lot. Like it, it's a huge culture change and the scenery is so different. And I think sure. you don't really miss home until you move somewhere else. Yeah, that that's I, I get that. I, I moved from Colorado to Oregon back in 2014, and that lasted two years. I had to Gosh. come back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I would love to go back, but the pandemic has made it so difficult, and you know, it's it's just really hard to get back into Australia now. Right. Yeah, and I don't know if uh, if you realize this or not, but I also have a background in clinical psychology. Um, I actually used to be a counselor for uh, people who were taking methadone, you know, heroin, oh, pain wow. pill, and I've done some multi-systemic therapy and a bunch of other stuff like that. So I totally can understand why you would maybe not want to do that the rest of your life. Yeah, it's very stressful. Um, I used to work on a youth crisis team um, and, and we worked in uh, First episode, psychosis. So it, it was oh, fairly wow. stressful and uh, very distressing at times. I, I think I still carry a lot of trauma from that. 
Yeah, and I don't know about you, but uh, for me, I found myself getting compassion fatigue. Mm. You know, like you constantly are hearing how bad every everyone's life is. Yeah. And after a while, you just start to become numb to it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, the jump to photography felt kind of very selfish, but I had been doing photography for quite a long time. I mean, I'd had my own business since I was 17, kind of on the side, doing it at the same time as um, working in mental health. And so it, it was scary to make the jump. It felt really selfish, but I think in the end it, w- it was a good idea. Yeah. Well, let's let's dive a little bit deeper into the whole photography side of things. You know, this yeah. is a photography <laughs> podcast after all. But, you know, one of the things that I noticed about you is that uh, you describe yourself as a lens-based artist, which which I really love. I love that descriptor um, for a lot of different reasons. Can you can you tell us about that subtle distinction in classification and, and why you've chosen to use it to describe your work? Yeah, so I'd always kind of, I was, I knew I was a photographer, but I didn't know how to describe myself. And for a while, um, I, I was kind of describing myself as a generalist photographer. And I got that idea from my friend, Victoria Hark. Um, And she's always described herself as a generalist photographer. So I kind of thought maybe I could be the same. Um, I'd started off doing documentary and music and food and event photography. Um, And that was before I made the jump into landscape and then into architecture photography. So things kind of started getting a little bit blurred when I got into architecture photography. I was doing a lot of processing and I didn't really feel like I was being a pure photographer anymore. Um, And I started exploring, doing a bit of research um, and, and looking at some of the ways that the artists that I admired described themselves. And I saw that term being thrown around a lot, a lens-based artist. And Basically, it means using a lens as your central tool um, to capture images, which you then transform into art. So it's it's not purely documentary photography. It's about using the camera as a tool. Um, you might be using techniques like photo montage, um, combining two or more images to make one, mm-hmm. um, or using different types of image capturing devices, not just traditional cameras. Um, So there were people who were using x-ray machines. There were people using (laughs) photocopiers and scanners um, and, you know, video production as well, um, other types of digital visual media. And I found that really exciting because it wasn't about putting yourself into a niche as someone who uses a camera. Um, Basically, you're someone who can think critically, expand your skill set, and that gives you so much more scope for storytelling, especially when technology is just constantly evolving. Yeah, yeah. No, I I, I really like that you've you've distinguished yourself in that way because, well, for a lot of reasons, but, you know, I'd like to think of myself as a nature and landscape photographer, but I also think that, at least in my mind, that comes with some some boxes around some of the things I do and don't do. And I'm, I'm good with that. I own that. Like I want that. I want those limitations on my work, but um, I also don't want to be put in the same box as someone who's 
a digital artist or an architecture artist or whatever. Like I want those distinctions to exist mostly because I just want like with like, maybe it's because my brain works that way or something. But I think when you label yourself as a lens-based artist, that really opens you up to be able to say like, yeah, I didn't call myself a landscape photographer. I'm a land, I'm a lens-based artist, which means I, I'm not adhering to those standards, you know, and I like that. Yeah, exactly. I, I just think it, it gives you so much more scope to be creative. Um, you're really not defining yourself as anything in particular, just someone who's utilizing these tools. Yeah. And I think it's important to, to own that, you know, like, that's who I am and I'm proud of it. I think that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of hard to arrive at that decision because I felt like maybe I would lose some credibility uh-huh. or that maybe, you know, some people would stop liking my work um, or following my work. And then in the end, I just thought it doesn't matter. It's about how I feel about my work. And I think that's the most important thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I want to really uh, dive deep into the variety of inspirations for your work. Uh, Cause it's at least in the last, I guess I feel like maybe in the last year or two, your work has really gone in a totally different direction than I could remember seeing from you in the past. Um, and I, I think you had said some of the inspirations for your work are science and history and futurism and human behavior. And I would love to hear how those things have, if you've been able to weave those in, into your work and your artistic creations? Yeah, so I've always been a real strong advocate for science. Um, I mean, I've worked in mental health for so long and I I was kind of interested um, in science for a long time, but it wasn't until recently that I started really having the time to explore things a little bit further, especially with the pandemic um, being stuck at home. So I've been listening to a lot of uh, BBC science, um, science podcasts, doing a lot of reading, um, and, and all of that has kind of had a huge influence on how I view the world um, and how I think about it. So I think the one thing that's uh, really stuck out for me during this time is how fragile life is and how long it's taken for everything here to evolve um, and how in such a small amount of time human behavior has really changed the planet Um, and it's just amazing that we're such a flash in the pan and we've made such a huge impact on on this world it's and, and on all the animals that live on this planet like it's it's just stunning and to right. see how that a virus could kind of bring us to our knees was was really humbling i think mm-hmm. um and so in that sense i started trying to storytell a bit um, in in a different way and to view the world around me in a different way. So instead of just taking pretty pictures of the environment, which I was doing previously, um, I've started trying to use my work as a bit of a conversation starter to get people to think about where we're headed, um, how we're evolving, um, and to think more about the decisions that we're making as a a human race. Yeah, so... That all deeply resonates with me. Um, I think where a lot of people, or at least myself, where I get stuck is 
kind of the how behind some of that, you know, like, because when I'm not necessarily sure that for a lot of viewers of your work, that's going to be obvious to them. So I'm curious for you, if you could talk a little bit about kind of your vision for the, for the art, artwork that you're creating and, and how you've managed to kind of translate some of those ideals through your work in a way that maybe is a little bit more subtle. Yeah, so my latest series, which is um, it's called 2021 Plus or Minus 2 Utopia Broadcasting, um, it's it's a series that involves industrial and religious architecture in the Icelandic landscape, um, and it's kind of toned and processed in such a way that it should kind of bring to mind a, a different place, a different time, a different world, um, and really, it's it's it kind of looks like it doesn't exist on this planet. Some of it looks like it's maybe digitally enhanced or digitally created, um, and and that was the point of it. So I wanted people to think about how we transform our environment. Um, So with with the industrial architecture that I'm photographing, a lot of it has to do with human survival. So there are concrete plants, there are steel recycling plants, um, water towers, you know, all the things that we've created to, to keep the human race safe and going. And we often think about you know, what we're doing to our own planet and that maybe we should colonize a different planet in space um, and how that might look. And I think oftentimes we think that that might look really, really futuristic when in actual fact it would probably look very similar to structures that we already have on Earth because all of these structures that we've built that are quite ugly on their own, um, they sustain humans. Um, we need to mine for things. We need to, we need steel. We need concrete. We need all of this stuff to build structures that will keep us safe. Um, and of course, we need to find, we need to catch water. We need to desalinate all of that stuff. So all of that stuff would probably exist with us if we took it somewhere else. And if we were to take it somewhere else, how would we construct it in such a way that we wouldn't be damaging the environment um, as we've done here on Earth? So I think a, a lot of that I try to convey with little stories or messages that I put out in the captioning um, of, of my art. Um, usually it's included in a little placard um, with printed work or else it's uh, put out in captions on social media. Gotcha. Yeah, no, that makes that makes a lot of sense. It's always interesting to hear people talk about, you know, the kind of, I don't want to say hidden, but kind of the beyond the surface uh, explanation of what's going on with what they're trying to convey through their photography. And I appreciate you doing that. <laughs> it's really cool. <laughs> yeah, I've had to talk a lot about it recently. So right. I, I think every time I get a bit more jumbled and I start wondering, well, what am I trying to say with <laughs> Well, maybe it'll change over time. Who knows, right? (laughs) That's funny. Well, I I mean, along those lines, you know, one of the things that you touched on um, is, you know, the pandemic is I feel like the pandemic has really taught a lot of us, as evidenced by the great resignation, uh, that life is fleeting. 
Um, how has that realization for you transformed your artistic choices and how you see the world around you as a photographer? So I used to travel a lot um, and I used to chase locations that I had seen or try and explore places that I hadn't been. Um, and I think when the pandemic first hit and I started kind of spending a lot of time at home um, and being scared to go out, um, <laughs> you know, just walking around the neighbourhood was really helpful um, and I started exploring in a way that I used to when I first got into photography as a kid, you know, exploring my immediate surroundings um, and looking for beauty in like the mundane. So I started creating more for myself um, rather than chasing this idea of beauty that I'd been seeing in social media. So it was a great way to disconnect Um and, and I find that when you're saturated by media, when you're saturated by all the images that you see in the landscape photography community, it's really hard to develop your own creativity. So, yeah, that I, that really changed for me a lot when the pandemic started. Um, and it's stuck with me even now because I'm still spending a lot of time at home. Um, and it's it's made me think very differently about my subject choices um, and it, it's, I find that it's far more fascinating uh, to concentrate on things that are not often seen um, in people's day-to-day -day lives. So it, it's, it's interesting for other people as well because they, they often, you know, you're stuck in your own life, you see life through your own lens, um, and, and to, to be able to see the world in a different perspective is, is very good thing right now, I think. Oh, absolutely. Like, it almost seems like you've kind of transcended uh, above and beyond kind of your, what you, how the way you used to think or look at the world uh, as a photographer. You know, I mean, you talked a lot about chasing locations and, you know, chasing beautiful scenes of nature and all that, which is what most of us do in landscape and nature photography, right? But I think a lot of people that I've spoken with, including and including myself, there's this kind of desire to do more, to be more, to want our photos to go beyond just that. And so it's interesting for me to hear you talk about going through that process for yourself. Do you see yourself or your photography, photography uh, differently now because of that? Definitely. Um, it's, you know, I... I disconnected a lot from social media um, in the last mm. couple of years and it's really changed my perspective on what I want my art to be um, and I think that that has helped to give me a bit more individuality um, and to be able to proceed with my work. I was feeling really stuck um, mm -hmm. and I was feeling like we were all producing the same things um, you know, we're, we're all visiting the same places, seeing the same things. And it became kind of, it, it was like I was in a creative block uh, with my landscape photography. So now that I've kind of reframed how I think about it, um, I'm able to take pictures that satisfy me. Um, and I feel that I'm able to move forward with it now and to be more creative um, and to focus on different projects that will help me to 
kind of, you know, sort out some of the thoughts that I have in my head um, and to be able to communicate that. Yeah, let's let's dig a little deeper into that because I would love for you to, you to talk a little bit more about the nuts and bolts of that in terms of, you know, if you have an idea, like are you, you know, like what's your process for, oh, I have this thing that I want to communicate and then, oh, and then like two months later you have the end result. <laughs> so like what are the things in between the two? So, I mean, previously the process was kind of I'll go out, I'll see something interesting and then I'll think about it and then I'll come back to it and take the photo after I've already kind of had, you know, a bit of a story floating around in my head. Uh, but these days I've I've got a bit more of a plan to it. So first I come up with the concept um, and and I plan what I need to be able to bring that concept into fruition. Um, and then I'll go about trying to capture it. And I'll often capture that concept in a range of different uh, conditions before I decide on which image I want to use um, as part of my project. So that in itself, it, it can take quite a while and coming up with story behind it, it like the, there has to be an umbrella story that goes with the project, but then each image has to tell a story of its own. Uh, and that process, it kind of evolves. So I might come up with an initial story um, and then the story changes um, as, as I kind of start telling people about it. Um, and, and then after a while, it just comes into its own and then, and then, you know, it's, it's kind of set. So I, I think it's, it's more about brainstorming what you want to do, um, and then taking the picture, uh, rather than going out in exploration of things and not really knowing where, where you want to go with it. Yeah. And I noticed that at least with your most recent work that, uh, it seems like there's a lot of thought that's gone into the post-processing aesthetic of of the images and I would go as far as to say the consistency of that um, in terms of having a consistent theme throughout all of the images that are part of the project or whatever uh, how did you how did you arrive at the, the that specific aesthetic uh, for those images I would love for you to talk a little bit about that so I was uh, <laughs> I was really obsessed with um, science fiction films um, and also with synthwave music. Um, and so for a while I was listening to so much synthwave and with synthwave you get a lot of digital imagery coming at you, especially on album covers and things like that. And they're all this specific palette of colours. It's all very futuristic, it's sometimes pastel um, or neon, but it's mostly pinks, purples, blues, you know, that kind of futuristic kind of colour that you maybe associate with lasers. Um, and so that kind of started seeping into my work and I started creating my own palettes that I was working with um, and trying to incorporate those palettes into each image uh, so that they would be uniform and that they would match from one image to the next. Um, and it kind of evolved from there. So I started learning to use Photoshop a bit more. Previously, I just kind of dabbled with it. Um, but I started, you know, really researching how to use it and learning new techniques 
Um, and so it's been really fun. <laughs> it's, it's been a fun process. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, your, your work reminds me a lot of um, one of our former guests, uh, Gerard Armijo. Um, yeah. He does a lot of that pastel color toning type work in his post-processing as well. Yeah, I'd venture out to say he's one of my closest friends. So oh, cool. <laughs> he's had a huge influence on my work. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Yeah, no, it's um, there's a lot of parallels there for sure. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I really admire his work. Um, and, and I admire how his work has evolved as well recently. Yeah. Well, so, you know, traditionally speaking, uh, when people think of landscape photography, they imagine beautiful scenes of nature and these amazing vistas and things like that. Through your work, um, you've been making the case of late that human impact on Earth is an extension of nature, and I think rightfully so. Uh, and you feature that impact in your creations, in your artwork. Uh, tell us a little bit about that decision and, and how what that means for you and your work. Yeah, so I think that stems a bit from my own philosophy. Um, I mean, I think it was Carl Sagan who said we're all made of star stuff. So I believe, you know, everything in this universe is made of the same particles. And if you think about it, the universe, it's it's 13.8 billion years old and dinosaurs have been around for about 165 million years. And in comparison, we've only been on Earth for just a flash of time. It's about 6 million years. And yeah, blip. <laughs> yeah, that, that was just our ancestors. I mean, modern humans didn't evolve until around 300,000 years ago. And in that time, we have managed to destroy a lot of the planet. Um, and, and we kind of separate ourselves from nature by saying that we're destroying it. But it, it is really just human nature. I mean, everything that we build, everything that we make, um, it's part of our nature. And so I think that making the distinction between man-made stuff and nature is a bit irrelevant. And I think that if we want to move beyond the climate crisis, if we want to fix it, if we want a solution to it, then we need to see humanity and nature as the one thing. And there used to be a time when we did do that a long time ago when uh, there were, you know, lots of pagan beliefs. People associated spirits and gods with nature, earth and the stars. And it wasn't until recently, like very recent times, uh, when modern religions started attributing all of this to a god, to one god that gave humans the planet um, to, to kind of dominate. And I think that was really bad for us that we think of ourselves as superior to nature or animals. And I think when we talk about nature, we, we need to include ourselves in that. And when we talk about things like natural resources, we talk about the planet uh, and, and how it can provide for us rather than thinking um, of us as part of it. So in reality, we're really entangled with nature. I mean, we even have microorganisms inside us. So I think that's a 
good way of of moving forward, of realizing that everything in this world depends on each other for its existence. And if we can realize that we have a place within the natural world, that it's a living system and that we're organisms living within it, um, I think that's when we can really start to make a change. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm constantly beating a lot of those drums myself, but it's, it's hard to compete with the typical kind of counter argument of like, I got to put food on the table for my family, you know, which is what you typically hear from people who are like, especially in agriculture, you know, like I live in a pretty rural part of the world here and, you know, a lot of ranchers and farmers and things like that and coyotes and wolves and all of that (laughs) fun stuff. And, you know, it's hard to live, with nature when nature is seen as the enemy. So, um, and I get that, but at the same time, I think a lot of it is requires somewhat of a mind shift um, to kind of reimagine ourselves as being part of nature, not the dominion of nature, over nature. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, maybe we'll never even reach that point where we can make that mind shift, but, you know, it's, it's nice to think about. (laughs) Yeah, it is. I'm curious, do you have um, other photography projects or concepts or ideas that you've been dabbling with that might start to address some of that? Um, I'm, I'm kind of working on a new project right now. I don't really want to say too much about it, <laughs> um, but it does expand on this current project. Um, and rather than looking at utopia, it's looking more at a dystopia. So you know, looking at the other side of, of things. I love that. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, a lot of your recent work, like you said, involves um, imagery of architecture and architectural subjects. And I'd be curious if you could tell us uh, what lessons could be learned and applied to other genres of photography, maybe specifically landscape, by engaging in photography of human-made structures. You know, one thing that really stood out for me when I started doing architecture photography was how much landscape techniques I could apply to it. Um, It it was really fascinating for me. So previously I had tried architecture before and I just could not figure it out. It was like my brain couldn't figure out how to compose an image. Um, And I never thought that skills that I learned in landscape could be applied. And I think when you have an understanding of photography itself, then you can apply it to any genre really. Um, And I've been applying landscape photography skills specifically to my architecture work. So doing a lot of, you know, techniques that we use um, and and even post-processing techniques um, like luminosity masking, which isn't really used in architecture photography. So that's been fun. But architecture photography has really allowed me to see patterns in the landscape, mm-hmm. um, you know, lots of repetitive lines and, and making use of that. And I think it's helped me a bit more, especially in terms of abstract work. Um, so previously I had a lot of difficulty with abstract work as well. Um, and and being able to see that and compose Mm -hmm. that so yeah it's been really helpful yeah I bet yeah it's it seems like it seems like that would be a useful takeaway is 
that and I was I was thinking in my mind, um, you know, use of lines and patterns and shapes in composition for sure. I feel like architecture can teach you a lot about that because especially really good architecture because the architect themselves already thought of all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of architecture photography is often black and white. Um, and I think being able to bring mm-hmm. some colour into it, uh, you know, the, the way that we do in landscape photography by using light um, and, and specific times of shooting, like sunrise and sunset, I think that gives it uh, a, a different quality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, <clears throat> not to shift subjects, but uh, one thing I really wanted to talk to you about, and I was excited because you also, sounds like you're open to this topic, is kind of the differences between art and documentation. And I listened to your conversation with uh, Serena Jackson, and you guys talked a lot about the differences between photography as art versus typical what we see in a lot of landscape photography, which is just pure documentation. And that particular differentiation has always been of interest to me as someone who tries to kind of flirt between the two in my own work. Um, Can you compare and contrast the two ideas? Yeah, so I I might have um, a bit of a mixture of views, so it might get confusing (laughs) at times. Sure. So for me it's a little bit like nonfiction versus fiction, so Uh having an encyclopedia versus a novel. So one of them tells you the story as a series of facts um, and the other tells you a story that's based on imagination. Um, and I think that that's why there's minimal editing in things like photojournalism and documentary photography. And it differs completely from art photography because with art, the vision of the photographer comes through um, and that shows how they've experienced something. So I think that's the main definition for me. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, I've seen a lot of artistic documentary photography, not photojournalism, just documentary photography. Um, And I think in that sense, when you're trying to tell a story, you often are trying to apply your own experience to it. Um, And, you know, sometimes that makes me wonder about the line between art and documentation, uh, whether it's being blurred. Um, But, you know, Anything can be termed art. So, you know, some types of <laughs> photojournalism might be termed art. Um, where do you draw the line? Right. It's so funny. Have you seen the, I think it was in like an actual photo or a art gallery recently. It was literally like a empty cube. <laughs> like, <laughs> and it was like, this is art. It's like, yeah, yeah. It's like, okay. I mean, I can see how you could look at that and be like, oh, it represents this or that. But Come on, man. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, anything can be art these days. So I think if you really want to be black and white about it, then art is subjective and facts are objective. Sure. But, you know, there there are so many ways that you can present your photography and that's the same with facts. Like you can present facts in an artistic way. You know, we see David Attenborough doing that all the time with his documentaries. So is that then nonfiction? It still is. It's just presented in an artistic way that it's easy for people to digest. 
Um, I think when you take a fact, though, and then you manipulate it to be able to get your ideas across, then that becomes a concept that you're exploring. Um, and, and I think that's very subjective. And I think that's what makes it artistic. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm not against documentary photography or artistic photography. I, I think there are benefits to both. And I think that making the distinction is important uh, for things like photojournalism. But in, in other senses, I think people should just do what makes them happy. If you want to weave your opinion into the narrative, then do it. Um, but don't try and pass it off as, as something that's factual. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's where we often get into heated debates, uh, especially in landscape photography, because I think there's this kind of assumption that it represents an experience. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think what we often see is that people will kind of dip their toes into that kind of expressive, manipulative realm that you're discussing. But I think oftentimes it's, dare I say, it's just for vanity. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, and I can really appreciate the difference between when it's done for vanity versus when it's done to actually express a different idea or a concept um, or something that's abstract. And I think like when you look at your most recent work, it's very obvious to me that you're not trying to say, look at this pretty building that I then totally changed <laughs> and made look to look really cool. Like you're yeah. actually trying to tell, tell the viewer something more beyond that. And I think that that to me, that's the difference is that it's, it's an intentional use of manipulation to do mm. more than just make it, you know, Ooh, that's amazing. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there was a lot of, um, so recently in the Sony World Photography Awards, I noticed that there was quite a bit of manipulation in the images, photo montage mm -hmm. uh, of nature mixed with human constructs. And, you know, these images had been taken separately and then composited. Mm -hmm. um, and that was really interesting that, that people were exploring that um, as a way of storytelling and getting their experiences and ideas across. Um, and, and, you know, they were very open about it. You know, I think if you're open about it, then people can understand it at a bit more. I think it's when you try and pass something mm -hmm. off as real when it's not real, I think that's when people feel, you know, like they, they have been manipulated to believe something that they shouldn't believe. And, and that's where I think some of that anger stems from uh, when we talk about purists versus artists, etc. Right. Yeah, I mean, that, leads, that kind of leads me down my next line of questioning, uh, which you've already touched on a little bit, but I want to go further. So for you, like, how do you really know when a photograph is quote unquote art versus when it's documentary? And do you think it's possible for a photograph to occupy both spaces at the same time? For me, I don't really know when a photograph is art versus documentary. Um, I need the photographer to tell me um, and I need them to be open and transparent about that. Um, and, you know, we there have been instances where photojournalists have, you know, removed things from their images or subtly manipulated their images um, and that's come out in the public. And it's the fact that they weren't open about it, I think, uh, like I said, which is why we feel so 
angry about it. Um, I think it is possible for a photograph to occupy both spaces at the same time. Um, like I said, you can certainly present facts in an artistic way. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're trying to present art as factual, then I think that's a problem. I think that's more conceptual. I think it's a concept that you're exploring and, and that you should be open about that. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's where a lot of nature and landscape photographers struggle is mm. is trying to um, express something through their photography um, without trying to deceive their viewer in some way. Well, some people are open about it. Like I'm purposely trying to deceive you and that's part <laughs> of why I did it. And I, I think that's awesome. I love that, mm. you know? And it, to me, it's not, it's really not about the technique or the end result. It's about the, like you said, the openness and the honesty and the, you know, the intentionality behind it. I think that's often what's that you talked about anger. For me, it's not anger. It's more like I just see through it. Like mm, mm-hmm. the only reason you did that is because you really just wanted people to like the photo more, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> like it doesn't serve an artistic purpose beyond that. Which Yeah, they just did it for the likes. <laughs> I mean, I could be wrong and, you know, people are tired of me talking about this particular subject, <laughs> but I thought you'd be a perfect person to talk to about it because you do it on purpose and it, and it looks awesome and it serves a purpose beyond just uh, vanity, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, when I first started, I, I felt really conflicted inside. I thought people are just going to think I'm not credible Um, people are going to say this isn't real photography. Um, And I wanted people to explore the message that I was trying to put across. Um, And so I've been very open about that, Um, especially when I've had my work in galleries as well, talking to people about how the images came about. Um, And I think in that environment, you're kind of encouraged to be a bit more open and people more accepting of of how you create um and so it's very inspiring so i think people should just be more open about how they arrive at an end product and why they've done that if you're just doing it for the likes then you know stop stop and think think about what you're doing yeah no that's exactly it the the why for me is the big thing that's always feels to be missing Mm -hmm. or at least it always not always, but like it often seems just shallow, you know, mm-hmm. like, why did you do that? Oh, because I thought it would look cool. Like, well, that's great. But <laughs> like that, that doesn't excite me. Like, um, but if someone were to say, I purposely made the moon three times bigger and changed the hue of the sky, not because I wanted you to like it more, but because it's expressing this idea or this emotion or this experience that I had or whatever, like, I can get down on that all day long, mm. you know? <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> yeah. And I think to your point, I think people should just be open with that stuff. Tell us why you did it, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely the why. We, we get hung up on that um, and all we need is an answer. Once you have the answer, you can move past that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, and this is going to sound judgy, but I think oftentimes what we don't hear that is because there really isn't a good why, <laughs> or at least one that's that exciting. You know, it's like, oh, I just thought it would look cool or whatever. And Yeah. 
which is fine. I mean, if that's what, you know, makes you happy, that's cool. I just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Well, um, total shifting gears here. Let's talk about the power of collective effort vis-a-vis women in the photography space. Just today, uh, over on Twitter, um, I saw a woman who was conducting research through interviews on the real and perceived differences in equity between men and women in the photography space. And I would love for you to tell us um, what your thoughts are on that particular issue. I wish I'd seen that, but um, I don't really keep up with Twitter. Um, but I think that there is a really deep-rooted gender imbalance. And, and it's not just in landscape photography. It seeps into landscape photography. But I think that us as a whole, you know, male, female, all sorts of photographers, I th- and especially in landscape, um, I think that we're quite well-traveled, you know. We've been to a lot of places. We've seen a lot of things and we mostly care about nature. We mostly care about other people. And so we often think that we're giving everyone a fair go when we're not really doing it. And so when someone in a minority, um, whether that's women, whether it's an ethnic minority, whenever we step up and we say, no, look, it's not really fair. Uh, We don't think that you're treating us with respect and you're not welcoming us in. Then I think that can be really confronting for us because we think we are being open. Um, And so ultimately I think it's about, you know, discussing whether we have an inclusive culture uh, within our field of photography, uh, whether we have respect for each other as photographers. Um, and I think a lot of the time it comes down to, one, we don't respect our fellow photographers. We either think we're better than them or that we do things differently and, and so we don't respect how they might do something. Um, and that then trickles down into are we respecting women photographers um, and are we respecting other types of photographers no matter where they come from and who they might be? And so I think that's often reflected in things like who's selected to run photography workshops, who's selected to run brands and, and represent brands. Um, and if there is a problem with you know, lack of representation, then maybe those businesses need to have a talk about why they don't have these people on their team um, or why they think that there's a problem having these people represent their brand. And like I said, it's not just women in photography, it's it's all types of minorities. And sometimes it even affects men um, in, in different ways ethnic groups. So, you know, it's, it's something that we need to look at as a whole. I think it's a respect issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely something that's top of mind for me. And I've, I try to, I mean, I, I try to have as many women guests on my podcast as possible just because I want to help champion what you're describing and expose this issue a little bit more thoroughly. But what I also see on the flip side of that that always kills me is that people accuse people like me of just engaging in tokenism, right? Mm. Like, like, Oh, you're just doing that so that you can look better or whatever. And I, 
how can we do this in a way that people understand that it's authentic and genuine and it's not just, you know, trying to to play to an ideal to, you know, for lack of a better term, whitewash or man wash? <laughs> Woman wash? <laughs> I don't know. What's the what's the word there, but <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I th- I think it's more of a mind shift, you know. When people see themselves being represented in the media, then they feel that they're accepted by the media. So I, I was having this conversation on International Women's Day last year on Clubhouse that we don't feel included because we don't see ourselves in those positions. And if you see more women, if you see more ethnic minorities in these positions, then you're more likely to feel like you're part of it. And so, you know, maybe it is just having more people on who who represent these different groups on your podcast or, or for other people to represent their brands. But you know, in terms of being authentic and genuine, it's just about, you know, continuing to do it, not just making it a, a fashionable thing to be doing right now. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it's funny. Well, it's not funny, but it's, it's interesting. I was listening to you talk about this topic with Serena as well, which is funny, Serena and Serena, but anyway, <laughs> um, you guys were talking about, even how it ha- happens with gear, you know, like and how gear is designed and backpacks and how mm-hmm. big cameras are and, you know, like the stuff that's made for photographers is not made for women, you know, it's, yeah. And, if, and as a man, like I just, you know, whatever, I don't see that, <laughs> but you know, cause it's, well, I have pretty small hands, but that's why you sh- one of the reasons why I like Sony, but um, mm. you know, I picked up a Canon. I'm like, dude, if I, I can't do this. It's, <laughs> So like, yeah. has that been, I'm guessing that's been part of your experience too, that a lot of the, just everything that's designed for the field of photography is really catered to men. Most definitely. I mean, I had a, so when, when I first started out in photography, I, I did music photography and I, I, I was talking about this with Serena on her podcast as well, that um, I needed straps that would hold two cameras on my body and there was only one company that produced straps like that for women and it was Black Rapid Um, and it, it was specifically designed to go around a woman's chest and it was the most useful piece of gear for me. And I was so lucky that they had designed that for women. Um, previously, I had tried other devices that were only made for men and it was just impossible. Um, and recently, so I've been doing a lot of fungi photography. Um, I was looking for a belt that would carry my camera gear so that I wouldn't have to wear a backpack. And I started looking at photojournalism pouches and slings. And I actually found one that was designed for women, uh, made by a company that makes the leading uh, pouch or satchel for men, for for male photojournalists. Uh, But it wasn't in stock at B&H Photo. And I wrote to them and I asked, like, can you get the female one into stock? And they said, no, we have no plans to stock this. And I just thought, is it because you don't have demand? I mean, th- there were lots of women writing and asking for it and they had no plans to stock it. Um, and, and that yeah. really frustrated me that, um, you know, the demand was there. They just weren't meeting that demand. 
And, you know, how, how much more can you do to ask people for things like this? They know that we're out there. They know there are women that need this gear. So why not cater for us? That's a good question. I mean, you, you would think 50% of the world is women. (laughs) (laughs) And I know at landscape photography, it's a much smaller percentage, you know, but you know, if you include portrait and wedding, I mean, it's probably 50, 50, you know, Mm -hmm. so it doesn't really make sense from a economic perspective, why you wouldn't want to make products that work for both types of people. Yeah, exactly. And I think it it really comes down to the fact that they need more women in those departments. So, you know, someone to advocate for women and how products are designed. So they need someone in that process. Um, And and maybe some companies do and those women still aren't being heard. But I, I think, you know, that's something that really needs to be explored because women do purchase a lot of cameras. We do purchase a lot of camera gear. And like you said, uh, there are a lot of women doing photography. So we just need to see ourselves represented and that will make us feel welcomed. And of course, you know, then you can take our money. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's, it's interesting. I've noticed that uh, there's become, I mean, like maybe the last five years, there's a lot more emphasis on what we originally started talking about, which is that collective effort. And like, I know Sarah Marino has like a whole article on women photographers that you should follow. And I know that I think I've heard rumor from her and others that there's like a secret group you can join to, you know, (laughs) where you guys talk to each other about issues that you face and things like, which I think is awesome, you know, and I've seen like women only, workshops and things like that do you see that is is that one of the paths forward is to you know that collective voice type of a thing yeah definitely I think when you work together that's how you can really bring about change so like I spoke about during into during International Women's Day there are some of us who are in strong positions right now as photographers And that previously didn't exist for women. And I think when we're in those positions, we're able to bring other women up to those positions. So you can recommend your fellow photographers um, because maybe these companies don't know that there are all these women photographers waiting, you know, in line to, to be representing their brands. So you just need to make them aware that yes, we can do a good job. Um, we can do as good a job as men. Um, and here's the contact. Here's, here's the person that I know who can fill that space. If I can't do it, here's this other person. So, you know, it's, that's how you do it. You just, that's how you bring more women into the fold. Um, and, and it's just about, you know, treating each other with respect rather than rival, like seeing each other as rivals. Brilliant. Yeah, no, I love that. I think I need to take more of your advice and see, see more of my fellow photographers, not as rivals, for sure. I think <laughs> it's hard. I mean... <laughs> It feels like you're in direct competition with people a lot of the time, but, you know, we're all just trying to make art. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's um, it's human nature, I think, you know, mm-hmm. survival instinct kind of stuff that comes out in all of us. Yeah. All right. So, um, 
Well, I'd love for you to tell our listeners about your recent exhibition in Berlin and also how else people can see your work and support you. Yes. Yeah, so uh, in November last year, I had an exhibition in Berlin um, as part of the BBA Photography Prize for 2021. Um, so I was one of the shortlisted photographers and my work was on display at the Cool House and that was very cool. <laughs> so <laughs> It, it was it was amazing to see it there. I mean, the comp there were so many entries to this competition um, of fine art photography, and it was all so diverse. Um, there was portraiture, there was architecture, there was commercial photography. It, it was just absolutely outstanding, and to see my name and my work next to the work of these other artists, it was just mind-blowing. Um, I didn't think that I could have gotten that far. So it was really fun. Um, and after the exhibition closed, it closed recently in December, uh, my work was actually taken on by Aleto Hotel in Berlin, where it's currently on display. So it, people can still go and see it. It's in the lobby um, and the conference room area. Um, and that's on indefinite exhibition there. Um, and just a couple of days ago, I found out that I was shortlisted for the Sony World Photography Award. Um, and so my work will be part of that exhibition as well, starting in April, I think it's April, um, at Somerset House in London in the UK. Um, it'll be there for a, a few weeks. And then in November, it's going to Liverpool in the UK um, to the Open Eye Gallery. And after that, it's going on a traveling exhibition around the world. So uh, hopefully some people will be able to get there and see it. I'm not sure where those exhibitions are going to be for now. Um, and hopefully I'll be able to have an exhibition on home soil um, in Australia at some point, uh, either this year or the next. Awesome. That's great. Yeah, it's always awesome to hear people finding success in um, competitions and galleries and, and, and things like that. So congratulations on that. Thank you. It's, it's been a huge step upwards in my career. So never thought I'd see ugly industrial architecture up there, but it certainly is up there. <laughs> hey, you know, I think... What it is, though, is it's a, it's a testament that, you know, sometimes it takes, you have to take a risk mm -hmm. um, and try something different and don't be afraid to do that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well said. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Serena, who would you recommend our listeners learn more about? So one of my favorite photographers uh, is Angel Fito. And he's a Spanish underwater photographer, a marine photographer. Um, and his work is absolutely stunning. You see the world in a really different light. Um, you know, there's microscopic organisms that you'd never have thought existed. Um, it's just mind-blowing. Uh, there's another photographer that I really love, Ed Norton. Um, he's a documentary photographer and his work just brings out so much emotion and and he documents such amazing causes. So he's really worth looking at. I love I loved him in American History X. 
No, I'm just kidding. Different guy. Different guy. Different guy. Different guy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and one of my more recent finds um, is a person that I exhibited alongside in Berlin, Chris Munzia. Um, he's one of the most outstanding photographers that I've ever met. Uh, his work has this commercial feel to it. Um, and, you know, it, it looks like it's straight out of a magazine. It should be on a magazine cover. But the commentary behind it um, is so personal and so meaningful. Um, his work is just absolutely amazing. Uh, another one is Mika Douglas. I also exhibited alongside her and her work is just so atmospheric, um, dark and moody. Recently she's been uh, making artwork from scanners and photocopiers um, and I found that just to be so creative, it blew my mind. She was throwing things onto her scanner like ribbons and scrunched up pieces of paper and some of them looked like they were taken underwater. They looked like you know, organisms that you'd find in the sea uh, or flowers. So it, it was really fascinating. That's awesome. And then, yeah, so the last would be Renata Dutre. So she's a Dutch photographer um, and her work is is with, I guess, minorities um, and it's it's portraiture. It's it just it's so touching to look at, um, and and to see the way that she captures the emotion of her subjects is is just amazing. That's brilliant. Yeah, uh, at the start of the pandemic or thereabouts, we had a guest on our show, Andy uh, Bunau, and he was doing uh, these really cool portraits using people's webcams, mm, um, wow. like over Zoom. <laughs> like he would. He would, you know, stage people through Zoom and take pictures of them through their webcam. It was a pretty cool idea. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's the kind of thing where you think, why didn't I think of that? Right. <laughs> why wasn't I that creative? <laughs> right. Yeah, no. Well, I think it's funny. I think we all have really good ideas. I think oftentimes what's what we all, not all of us, but for me anyway, it's the <laughs> execution. You know, it's like, oh, man, that yes. sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been super fun, Serena. I had a really great time chatting with you. It's finally good to put a, a face with the voice and the name. <laughs> Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. This this was really fun. It's been one of the more fun podcasts that I've done. Awesome. Well, thanks to Serena for joining me on the podcast this week. I encourage you to go check out her work on her website. It's Serena versus the world. You can see how her work has transformed in recent years, which I think is a really fun way to look at someone's work and perhaps your own work as well. Also, if you enjoyed our conversation, you can join us for a bonus episode on Patreon about harnessing your dreams and imagination in your photography. Next week, we have a panel conversation with the head photographer of the Wilderness Society, Mason Cummings, and the senior science director for the Wilderness Society, Greg Applett. It was a great conversation that was suggested to us by one of our listeners, Joe Doherty. Thanks, Joe, for helping make the connection. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week. <laughs>